Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Uh, My name is Mary Woods and I'm going to be your host for the next 13 weeks. This program is going to focus on substance use, misuse, and addiction. We're going to talk about treatment and public policy, stigma, recovery, um, and a whole host of issues. And I am very pleased to have as our first guest Dr. Mark McGovern um, from the Dartmouth Psychiatric Research Center, who's going to discuss with us um, what is substance abuse and what is addiction and treatment and the recovery um, spectrum of substance use disorders as well. So, Dr. McGovern, um, welcome, and could you begin by telling us a little bit about your current work and what you have been doing? Sure. Uh, I'm uh, currently an associate professor in the Department of Psychiatry at Dartmouth Medical School, and most of the work I do here and uh, with a great team of other folks involves treatment outcome research. We're particularly interested in uh, folks that have substance use disorders that also have other psychiatric problems and are really focused on trying to improve their chances at, uh, at recovery from both substance use and uh, psychiatric problems. Now, could you begin by um, explaining to our listeners what is substance abuse? Is it, is it a question of willpower? Is it just using too much? What is the definition of substance abuse? Yeah, I think it, it, it is an important definitional issue. First of all, there's, uh, according to our uh, diagnostic and statistical manual of uh, disorders, substance abuse is really one type of substance-related disorders, and actually substance abuse is the less severe form. Substance dependence is the the, the most severe form, and I think when people talk about addiction or use terms like alcoholism, they're more than likely referring to someone who has a substance dependence disorder. People with substance abuse disorders uh, have uh, indeed many of the same symptoms and problems and uh, consequences of of their relationship with the substance, be it drugs or alcohol, but often don't have the same level of severity. So uh, people with substance abuse disorders, it's a a less severe uh, diagnosis. What would be the um, symptoms of a substance abuse disorder or a substance use disorder versus uh, symptoms of dependence? Uh, well, really good question. I, uh, for, for the most part, people that have a substance dependence disorder uh, have s- symptoms associated with, uh, with uh, 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 dependence, which are normally uh, uh, noticed around uh, tolerance, uh, needing to use more of a, a substance to get the same effect uh, over time, or withdrawal um, the, 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 uh, in the absence of using the substance, substance. There are symptoms, for example, with alcohol, there might, might be anxiety and uh, uh, tremors or sleeplessness. Um, and in addition, uh, people that meet criteria for substance dependence disorder typically have uh, have demonstrated a, a pattern of consistent use in spite of consequences. So they've uh, uh, accumulated uh, quite a, a laundry list of uh, of uh, issues as a as a result of their substance use. And I think even more so, and probably last but not least, 
people who meet criteria for substance dependence disorders have themselves demonstrated a, a, a lack of ability to control their use. Usually, uh, these are uh, people who've sort of tried to set a limit, uh, often to stop entirely and violated their own personal intent or uh, have decided to cut back or control their use and uh, lo and behold, uh, violate uh, you know, that, that kind of uh, effort as well. People with substance abuse level disorders uh, uh, often have some of those characteristics, but typically not withdrawal, typically not tolerance, but more, uh, are, are more likely to have uh, uh, a pattern of uh, use with consequences and, and what, what, what begins to categorize them in the, in the area of abuse is that they continue to use despite those consequences. So would somebody have to use a substance daily like alcohol or cocaine or pot daily to be considered a substance abuser? No, no, not at all. It's, uh, you mentioned one drug in particular that, uh, that uh, really often qualifies a person for substance abuse or even substance dependence without using on a daily basis, and that's cocaine, uh, where a person may go for a week or even two weeks at a time without use, but uh, in spite of their, uh, their decision not to use or their uh, desire not to use, uh, will find themselves uh, on a Friday night uh, you know, looking to score some cocaine, and then when they do, uh, all of a sudden find themselves in a, a sort of a cascade of uh, negative events, uh, including maybe driving under the influence, associating with people that are uh, breaking the law, uh, you know, uh, violating promises or commitments to family members or loved ones, and uh, uh, then you know may- maybe uh, finding themselves uh, uh, coming to on a Sunday morning, uh, feeling very regretful and remorseful, and uh, making promises and having every bit of an intention not to do this again. So there really is a, uh, a broad spectrum of. Um of substance use that uh, people really need to be assessed for to be able to determine whether it's misuse, abuse, or dependence. Yeah, I I, I, I think that's right. Uh, you know, some pe- people uh, will certainly fall into a category of misuse, which is, uh, I guess, what many of us like to think of as uh, uh, below threshold in terms of diagnosis, where. Uh, you know, they may have, uh, you know, a brief experience of a consequence, but it's not an accumulative effect of consequences or uh, it hasn't been over a sufficient period of time to constitute an abuse level diagnosis. Um, and then, you know, for people who are dependent, it, it, it's, it, it is a much more uh, serious level of a disorder. And uh, unfortunately, uh, at, at the current state of our technology, these these diagnoses are made uh, entirely on the basis of a functional analysis, namely, uh, you know, an interview with a trained professional who asks a series of questions and you know categorizes uh, these responses into levels of severity and types of problems, and then makes some clinical judgments or inferences that that puts a person in one or the other of these categories. Unfortunately, and I think this is somewhat uh, in the near future, may- maybe not days or weeks or, or even a couple of years, but not probably not beyond 10 years is, is the potential to actually look at uh, 
brain scan technology to determine if a person meets criteria for some of these disorders. What role does genetics play in somebody's um, future development uh, substance disorder? Well, I think uh, I think a, a, a very large part, but not uh, not a hundred percent of the story. People with uh, family histories of substance use uh, disorders are certainly at increased risk to develop a disorder themselves, uh, and many people place that at about uh, fourfold the risk. Uh, however, even at fourfold the risk, they're still less likely to to, uh, to develop a substance use disorder than. Than, than they might be otherwise. So uh, I guess that's a, a, a roundabout way of saying both uh, heredity or genetics and environment will, will play a role. Right. And there's also uh, the concept of maturing out of, of substance abuse. There are a lot of people who misuse um, alcohol and um, recreational drugs during college and then never go back to that pattern of use. How, how would we explain that? Well, that's a, that's a good uh, question. I w- just finished uh, a, a meeting this afternoon with a, with a, a college student who was describing uh, some of her, uh, uh, her classmates, uh, female college students who have taken to smoking and uh, uh, many of whom will say that they uh, just plan on smoking during college and uh, after college is over when they hit the, uh, the work world or when they go to medical school or law school that smoking will no longer be um, you know, socially appropriate and it won't be something that they continue. But I think what we know about some of these data are that uh, although some will, will, will not go on to be smokers, uh, you know, many will, and uh, it's at this point somewhat hard to predict who's going to continue, uh, both with uh, uh, nicotine or tobacco and and or alcohol. But it does look like uh, there there are people that will u- use it during this sort of phase of life. But many will become addicted during that phase, and again, even though they might decide that they don't want to continue to use, will find themselves. Uh, continuing to use it in, in some way, shape, or form against their will. Um, for a number of years, one of the uh, substance use prevention slogans was just say no, um, implying that uh, substance abuse or dependence could was a question of willpower or um, it was an inherent in, in what someone did. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the... Um, the biological nature of, of addiction and substance dependence, and is it a disease? Is it a is it a social phenomenon? Is it a uh, question of willpower? Well, it's a big it's a big uh, uh, question you're asking there. We do know that people who are addicted, uh, by and large, diagnostic of the disorder, uh, have made many attempts through willpower to stop. In fact, many will say on a daily basis they've swore it off or stopped, but uh, seemingly against their will, uh, uh, you know, pick up pick up the substance again. We also know from brain scan technology and studies with animals that animals will choose to use a substance over some very basic things like uh, food, sex, water, sleep, to the point that they'll they'll actually die before giving up the substance. And again, the, these are animals; they're not 
uh, weak-willed or character-defected or immoral uh, animals. They're sort of just animals being animals. And what's happened to their brain is the brain itself has become addicted. And much like people, uh, you know, who resort to all sorts of behaviors that they might not otherwise do to obtain the substance, uh, this is really symptomatic of the disease of addiction, which, uh, you know, by definition, uh, is not about willpower once it achieves that le- level of severity. Um, when we come back from our break, we'll talk a little bit more with Dr. McGovern about the disease aspect of addiction, and we'll be right back. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. Raw to Radiant will change the way you look at food for the rest of your life. This is not a show about sprouted nuts, salads, or dehydrated foods. Host Kim Cohen will show you how a raw food diet, including raw meat dishes such as wild salmon ceviche, provides you with everything you need for a long life of radiant health and vitality. Tune in every Tuesday at 1 p.m. for Raw to Radiant on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Inner Health Through Homeopathy, hosted by Melissa Birch, CCH, with Dr. Tim Stryker. This show features a weekly discussion about homeopathy, a holistic approach to health care which treats ailments by bringing the entire body into balance. Homeopathy encompasses and examines the makeup of the entire person instead of focusing solely on a disease or ailment. The healing process involves physical, mental, and emotional changes which come from a wellness within. Homeopathic remedies go far beyond an alleviation of symptoms. They can restore harmony to the body and open paths to a higher level of awareness. Each week, Melissa Birch, CCH, explores a different health issue and individual healing processes with Tim Stryker, MD. Tune in every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel for Inner Health Through Homeopathy. Achieve exceptional levels of health and fitness through integrating the very best in fitness, nutrition, and healing. Tune into Total Fitness with fitness, nutrition, and healing coaches Catherine Kerrigan and James Williams. Each week, get inspired to exercise, eat and rest in harmony with your body's needs, and take advantage of effective natural healing methods with in-depth, cutting-edge information and advice. Get fit, get healthy, get motivated, and get real with Total Fitness, broadcasting every Friday at 7 a.m. on Voice America Health & Wellness. A healthy dialogue for your lifestyle. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time with um, Mary Woods and our guest, Dr. Mark McGovern. Uh, We were talking about the disease of addiction, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the disease concept of addiction, and um, if it is a disease, is it treatable? I think there's a a really uh, seminal paper, review paper, that was published in the 2000, uh, one of the 2000 issues of the Journal of the American Medical Association by some uh, investigators from the University of Pennsylvania who compared uh, the etiology, which is the, uh, another word for the cause, 
um, the course uh, and the treatment outcomes of patients who suffer from uh, addictive disorders and patients with hypertension, diabetes, and asthma. And hypertension, diabetes, and asthma are uh, definitely diseases or disorders of organs that many people feel, well, you know, a person has these diseases or disorders and uh, the organs, uh, you know, in the case of, the, of, of hypertension might be a cardiovascular system, in the case of asthma might be the respiratory system, in the case of diabetes might be uh, endocrine or, or pancreas system. And uh, a person might have some control uh, over their treatment or their behavior or lifestyle choices but by and large, that, that, that there are medications, there are uh, behavioral treatments, there are things a person can do to, uh, to manage these disorders and, and in some cases manage them successfully. In other cases, uh, you know, have uh, periods of uh, relative uh, 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 stability and other periods of relapse and, 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 and symptoms. Addiction turns out, uh, in this review, points this out in a, a much more eloquent way than I possibly can, but addiction, it turns out, is very much like uh, many of these other what, what, what are known as chronic diseases in that um, an organ, in this case the brain, is the organ that's affected. And uh, even though uh, behavior will play a role, there are some physiological changes that have taken place in the person and make it very, very difficult uh, for them to, uh, to lead a normal life without uh, 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 an intervention of some kind or another. Likewise, many people think if a person who receives some form of treatment uh, relapses or is noncompliant, uh, that that should be you know, the, the last chance they have at treatment. And uh, in many ways, a person who doesn't succeed at their first time in addiction treatment is often seen as a failure, uh, and even insurance companies will sometimes not, uh, not, not pay for a second or third treatment, whereas in uh, these other chronic diseases such as hypertension, diabetes, or asthma, a lifelong treatment or at least a treatment for the foreseeable future is sort of routinely accepted. And I think one of the, the, the best and recent scientific developments around the treatment of addiction is understanding it more so from a chronic disease perspective and an illness management perspective where I believe in the past we used to understand addiction as something that was more like an acute condition like an infection or a, a bone fracture that we could fix within a very short period of time, perhaps even 28 days. And after that, a person would somehow be miraculously cured and go on and lead a, a relatively normal life. And I think the way we're understanding treatment and the disease of addiction now is that we understand that there's been uh, neuroanatomical, neurological changes associated with the chronic use of substances such that a person will need uh, some form of treatment, even if it's only periodic monitoring uh, for the foreseeable future, if not uh, the rest of their life. So I think the, the disease uh, aspect to addiction is, uh, from, from a conceptual point of view, been pretty well established by people that have observed it or people that have suffered it, but uh, I believe uh, in the coming coming years we'll definitely be able to track it more physiologically, anatomically, and biomedically uh, through our uh, improvements in, in these kinds of technologies. You brought up the chronic illnesses of asthma, hypertension, and um, 
diabetes, and all of those chronic illnesses require, as you said, multiple episodes of care, yet it's been my experience that most addiction treatment programs, um, they, they limit um, episodes of care, and certainly most third-party uh, reimbursers limit um, episodes of care. So it seems like there's a double standard in many respects between um, the chronic illness of addiction and other chronic illnesses. Yeah, I think that that speaks to uh, one of the words uh, you used earlier, uh, and that is stigma, that there's a sense that a person uh, who is addicted is, uh, you know, is weak, uh, is immoral, uh, is, is sociopathic, and if he or she really, really wanted to, uh, they'd shape up and, and stop drinking or, or shape up and stop use, using a chemical. On the surface, from the outside, it looks very, uh, very straightforward. Uh, how, how can he possibly put that, uh, that liquid into his mouth or how can he possibly uh, smoke that substance or how can he possibly inject that substance given all the consequences and given all the hurt uh, he or she has caused? So I think that, that much of the healthcare industry and much of the insurance industry is still organized around that, uh, you know, very simple, naive, erroneous, uh, you know, sort of discriminating uh, view of people who suffer substance use disorders. Unfortunately, you know, there's at this point no x-ray into the brains of people who suffer these disorders uh, where uh, we could actually see that there's a, a pathology that is driving this, uh, you know, seemingly uh, bizarre, uh, selfish behavior. What are effective treatments um, for substance use disorders? What are the evidence-based practices for well, there's, uh, interestingly, uh, as much as you hear about the failures of addiction treatment in the media, um, the treatments are, are as effective as treatments for those other chronic diseases uh, I mentioned earlier. And certainly, uh, there are no cures. These are disor- disorders. Addiction is a disorder like these other problems that are probably going to have periods of, uh, of uh, stability and, and, and certain, certainly periods of relapse, but many patients uh, who receive treatment will go on to uh, uh, re- really symptom, uh, symptom-free uh, you know, lifelong, uh, lifelong you know, recovery. Uh, the list of effective treatments range from the pharmacological uh, to uh, psychosocial treatments, and uh, at different points uh, in the process of addiction, for instance, in acute states, certain treatments are, uh, are uh, more indicated. And uh, as people achieve stability or recovery, uh, different kinds of treatments or different kinds of supports are typically uh, more appropriate. Uh, it's possible to undertreat an addiction with, uh, you know, with not enough or not a sufficient dose uh, or intensity, and it's equally possible to overtreat addiction by uh, y- using you know too much of a particular intervention. Um, un- unfortunately, the, the former scenario is is more common than the latter. But there are many people, perhaps, who are in more intensive treatments, such as residential or hospital treatments, that probably don't require that uh, intense level of care. Uh, but often, uh, you know, are receiving it by virtue of other factors, such as, uh, you know, mandates from uh, a court or criminal justice system, 
um, or uh, uh, a conscious choice to be in a, a residential program, uh, uh, you know, versus an outpatient program. Um, we were talking earlier about the stigma that's attached to um, substance abuse and dependence, and um, I know, being a nurse. Uh, Certainly, when I was in nursing school, there was a lot of stigma attached to the patients who were there for alcohol-related disorders or there for withdrawal. And um, I certainly, the first years of my my nursing education, didn't receive much education around what addiction was, what a substance use disorder was, but I did receive education on all the complications of it. And I'm wondering, um, that was a few years ago, what... um, What's happening at the at the doctor level? You you um, are associated with Doctor Medi- with Dartmouth Medical School, and um, what's happening at that level in terms of educating professionals on substance use disorders? Well, yeah, I'd, I'd like to tell you that there's been enormous progress since uh, since the day, and I I don't pretend to know when you you were in nursing school, but I I'd like to say that that there's been enormous progress over for the past few years in terms of medical uh, education and, and resident education about substance use disorders. And although there has been some progress, I, I, uh, I dare say that there hasn't been uh, progress commensurate with the rates of these disorders that are likely in every hospital bed and every primary care, pediatric, OBGYN, uh, or even psychiatric practice that uh, uh, these men and women will, will, will go on to, to be working in. Uh, in medical uh, schools, for instance, uh, on average, less than 5% of curriculum is devoted to, to primary substance use disorders. And uh, in many, even other professions that you might think have more uh, dedicated time and, 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 and space and exposure uh, to substance use disorders, such as nursing or psychology or social work or counseling, um, you know, many of these uh, uh, disciplines only focus on substance use disorders, as you say, as a bit of an elective or as a, a secondary problem to other, uh, quote, uh, primary, unquote, uh, diseases, um, you know, which are, are clearly uh, uh, caused by uh, an addiction. So if in our next segment, we, we will talk a little bit more about specific effective treatments for substance use disorders um, with Dr. Mark McGovern. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. The true meaning of your dreams doesn't have to be a mystery. Join host Bob Haas, author and pioneer in dream science, to understand what your dreams mean and how they impact your daily life. Bob and his panel of experts from the International Association for the Study of Dreams will provide facts about dreams and discuss techniques of translating your own dreams and how you can use them for your mental and physical well-being. Dreamtime will further explore the research and science of dreaming and deliver a powerful comprehension of the function of dreaming. Listen live to Dreamtime with Bob Haas every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network and discover the science behind your dreams. Again, that's every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. You gotta Listen up. Conceive Magazine is now on the air, live, and on demand on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific. 
hosted by Kim Hahn, founder of Conceive Magazine. Conceive On Air offers comfort and emotional support to women contemplating starting or expanding their family by consulting noted professional experts and by sharing the insights and experiences of others. Kim wants to share her experiences to educate and empower women. Conceive On Air is the only complete resource destination that inspires and informs future moms about their fertility on the journey to parenthood. Conceive On Air with Kim Hahn, celebrating the creation of families. Step into a healthier you. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. We're talking with Dr. Mark McGovern um, in this segment about um, specific effective treatments for substance use disorders. And there are um, a couple that I would like to just throw, throw them out, and maybe you could just explain to our listeners what they are. Cognitive behavioral therapy? Yeah, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy is a, a psychosocial treatment, uh, is uh, typically delivered on in one-on-one, uh, one clinician, one patient, or one or two clinicians and a group of patients. It's focused on uh, the idea that uh, people, uh, people's behavior is often uh, secondary to different thoughts and uh, that these thoughts are, uh, uh, are reactions to situations. So uh, in the case of addiction, Often, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy focuses on uh, helping a, a person understand uh, what are known as the ABCs, the antecedents, behaviors, or consequences. Uh, so, uh, for instance, uh, no, knowing uh, uh, that when you go to a supermarket and you walk down an aisle, and in that aisle there are various wines and beers and liquors, that you might have a certain reaction to that, uh, and that reaction might be uh, an urge or a craving to purchase the the, the alcohol. Uh, knowing that that's a process for you uh, may, may be useful in, in helping you to think through a different approach to uh, shopping at that supermarket. Now, you might think that these things are self-evident, but for many people, actually uh, you know, talking and walking through these kinds of scenarios is actually uh, is actually very helpful, and it helps uh, a person to develop some alternatives um, uh, in terms of coping with situations that uh, they might not have otherwise thought through. Um, you mentioned pharmacotherapy earlier. What are what are the medications that are available for people with addiction? Well, there's really really a handful. Uh, unfortunately, there aren't as many as we would like. Uh, it's a great deal of investment. Currently, uh, both at the uh, National Institute of Health level and certainly uh, the pharmaceutical industry recognizing an untapped market uh, given the high rates of people with substance use disorders in the, in the, in the world, 
that if a medication could be uh, could be developed and 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 tested and found to be effective, that there'd be an awful lot of people uh, that could use it and benefit from it, and an awful lot of money to be made uh, in selling it. But Really, uh, the handful of medications uh, that have been developed are indicated for people with alcohol problems, and and uh, the the most longstanding uh, there is uh, uh, disulfiram, uh, otherwise known as Anabuse. It's a medication that is uh, uh, is very effective uh, uh, when taken as prescribed, such that uh, when a person taking the medication drinks alcohol has an aversive uh, reaction. Uh, uh, the alcohol causes an aversive reaction. Uh, another medication uh, is uh, a camprosate, uh, which is uh, uh, for people who've achieved some period of abstinence, uh, and it's a medication designed to reduce the craving for alcohol and has been uh, found to be very effective in people who, as I said, have some abstinence and who... Uh, 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 are interested in taking the medication to increase their chances of uh, preventing re- relapse. A third medication is uh, is uh, naltrexone uh, or Revia, uh, and that also is an anti-craving medication that, uh, uh, in, uh, unlike uh, a camprosate, may not uh, require a person to be abstinent to start, but is often uh, found uh, ha- has been found to be effective for people, not only in terms of preventing relapse, but when they actually do use, uh, having an experience, uh, uh, to use the, the word satiation, to, to, to feel rather quickly satiated when they use uh, alcohol on top of the medication. This medication uh, uh, has recently been developed in an uh, uh, injectable form, a time-released injectable form, and um, it's called, uh, uh, the brand name is Vivitrol, and uh, uh, the injection of this substance, naltrexone, uh, it lasts up to two weeks. So a person can get the injection and uh, uh, the, uh, the medication protects them, so to speak, against uh, alcohol use over a period of time so that uh, they don't need to make a conscious choice of whether to take the medication or not. As they as they also would need to make with uh, an abuse on on a rel- relatively a daily basis. There are other uh, medications for other substances, uh, uh, and this might be the the most effective and best known in uh, for people with uh, opioid uh, use disorders. And opioids are uh, uh, most most commonly uh, 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 used as heroin or prescription narcotics like uh, hydrocodone or Vicodin. Uh, oxycodone or oxycontin uh, medication for uh, opioid use disorders. Uh, the best known is methadone, uh, which uh, at present day is is uh, is very very uh, highly controlled uh, uh, by uh, the, the federal government and distributed primarily through uh, licensed uh, methadone maintenance clinics, uh, which are present in most states throughout the country. Unfortunately, many communities and uh, many many states still see methadone as uh, substituting one drug for another, even though this medication is uh, uh, amazingly effective, not only in uh, reducing heroin addiction, but also in reducing many of the public health and uh, uh, effects of uh, heroin use in, in a community. Other uh, newer medications for uh, opioid use disorders uh, uh, is a medication called uh, uh, 
buprenorphine, which uh, is uh, uh, what is known as a partial agonist and uh, has a, a, a promising effect on uh, heroin uh, use disorders and prescription narcotic use disorders, but the early uh, evidence uh, seemed to suggest that it was useful for all patients that suffered those disorders. But more recently and clinically, uh, it seems to be more appropriate and, and uh, for patients who are re- relatively early on in their addiction to, to opioids. So, uh, you know, people that have, have been using for less than a few years seem to be better candidates for buprenorphine. The good news about buprenorphine is that it's not uh, as heavily regulated uh, as uh, as methadone is, so it's a little bit uh, more more possible for people to get from uh, a primary care doctor or other physician who has special training and certification in the delivery of buprenorphine. But uh, at the moment, uh, those are re- really uh, the best uh, uh, FDA-approved medications for uh, for substance use disorders. There are many other medications that are being uh, being uh, studied, uh, some more promising than others, and uh, at the very least, medications provide some support and one one avenue for people who are trying to uh, deal with an addictive disorder uh, to, to, to get better. And what about self-help groups? How effective are they in the treatment of substance use disorders? Well, uh, I have begun to take issue with the term self-help because I think uh, it's a bit of an oxymoron. Uh, uh, self-help groups, if if you think about it, self-help generally is a person helping themselves, and I think the term self-help comes out of the uh, uh, the converse, uh, professional help. And really, what uh, is true about uh, uh, what are formerly known, uh, at least in my mind, as self-help groups are, are peer support groups, where people who have a common problem are working together to support one another, and uh, often this occurs in the context of a, of a program uh, developed by other people who have had the same problem that uh, you know, helps anticipate uh, problems and uh, d- define some avenues for, uh, for change and uh, uh, some avenues for working together to, to have a, a mutual, mutual recovery process. But... In response to your question, uh, these groups are are very very effective, um, and uh, unfortunately, they're not as accessible as we'd like to everyone. Many people have uh, concerns about uh, peer support groups. Uh, many people are not a quick take uh, to them. Uh, it looks like uh, somewhere between one and five and one of ten people with addictive disorders who are exposed to these groups will. Uh, Will will actually uh, uh, make a quick, uh, relatively quick connection and benefit from them. So there's still an awful lot of people who who who've find it very difficult to make the connection. On the other hand, those that do make the connection, uh, the, their involvement in, in peer support groups uh, is very very much associated with with long term recovery from addictive disorders. And uh, I believe not only uh, uh, the the, the Symptoms of addiction uh, improve, but also uh, many people involved in peer support groups talk about an, an, an overall improvement uh, of, of the quality of their life, quality of relationships, uh, spiritual connections, uh, and uh, you know, re- re- really, it, it is one, you know one of the best things going. Not, not probably not only for people with with uh, 
with substance use disorders, but you know people of all kinds seem to benefit from uh, peer support of uh, of one way, shape, or form. Certainly, is a good way of life. Um, what percentage of the people in America are affected by substance use disorders or substance dependence? Well, affected, uh, you know. Uh, the, the the rates of people with the disorder themselves, uh, uh, you know, range from a lower number for drug use disorders to uh, somewhere around two percent, maybe as high as three percent, to a higher number of people if you throw in alcohol use disorders, probably fifteen to sixteen percent. Uh, so these are uh, you know roughly uh, one in uh, one in eight Americans uh, may actually suffer at some point in their life from an addictive disorder. If you take into account the people who they are married to, the people who they are children of or parents of, uh, who they work with, uh, who they uh, drive in a vehicle, uh, you know, uh, alongside with, um, you know, work in the supermarket with, it's, uh, it's a, a much, much larger number and maybe as high as 90% of people have some relationship with uh, or, or higher a person with a substance use disorder. Thank you. Um, as we go to break, we will return and talk a little bit about um, dual disorders with Dr. Mark McGovern. A healthy dialogue for your lifestyle. Voice America Health and Wellness. Carol Truman is dedicated to helping people discover their true self. Learn how you can change your negative feelings to positive ones in less than 60 seconds with a unique tool found in the feelings books. These books, along with additional literature on fitness, health, and well-being, newsletters, and even significant music are available through her website, www.healingfeelings.com. Log on today and discover how buried feelings impact thoughts, relationships, finances, and health. That's www.healingfeelings.com. Lost your way? Carol Truman is here to guide you on your journey to your true self and realizing your inherent magnificent worth. She and her son, Boyd Truman, offer one-on-one counseling, both in person and over the phone. Call today and let them get you back on the path to discovering your true self. Their number is 800-531-3180. They also offer seminars, classes, and do speaking engagements. Visit www.healingfeelings.com today and learn more about how Healing Feelings can help you on your journey to finding the real you. Once again, that's www.healingfeelings.com. Raw to Radiant will change the way you look at food for the rest of your life. This is not a show about sprouted nuts, salads, or dehydrated foods. Host Kim Cohen will show you how a raw food diet, including raw meat dishes such as wild salmon ceviche, provides you with everything you need for a long life of radiant health and vitality. Tune in every Tuesday at 1 p.m. for Raw to Radiant on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. 
Many employers are concerned as well as confused by the current alphabet soup of employee benefits in the marketplace today. On the Benefits Buzz, Inside Health Insurance in America, host Sharon Alt and her expert guests clear up some of that confusion by offering answers to the difficult questions in a clear, understandable manner. Sharon is not a doctor, but a health insurance professional with over 15 years of experience. She draws on that experience to help make the apparent maze of health insurance options and procedures more easily understood and navigated. Join host Sharon Alt as she discusses some of the myths versus realities of health insurance in America. Hear from insurance industry insiders as well as high-ranking government officials as we peel back the layers of how health insurance has, could, and should work in America. This show is not only for the employer, but the employee, the insured, and the uninsured. The Benefits Buzz, Inside Health Insurance in America with Sharon Alt. Broadcast each Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Central, 2 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Steps to a healthier you. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. We are talking with Dr. Mark McGovern about substance use disorders and substance dependence. And for our last segment, I was wondering, Dr. McGovern, if you could talk a little bit about dual disorders. That's a term that um, seems to be you hear a lot when you go on people's websites or people talk about treatment. Um, What exactly is a dual disorder? Well, I think if you... Google the term dual disorder, my guess is that you'll come up with, um, you know, hypertension and diabetes, but the the nature of our conversation or the type of conversation we're having, uh, dual disorders means uh, co-occurring substance use and uh, other mental health disorders. So most common co-occurring disorder is uh, probably alcohol dependence or alcoholism and depression. Uh, which uh, has a couple of different forms, but uh, most typically could be a major depressive disorder or dysthymic disorder, which is a less severe form of depression. But a a dual disorder or co-occurring disorder could also be a person who suffers schizophrenia, for instance, a a very severe uh, psychiatric disorder, and uh, maybe a less severe substance disorder like uh, marijuana uh, use a person that uses, you know, marijuana uh, on top of the schizophrenic symptoms. Um, I know at Westbridge, the organization that um, I work at, we um, have a lot of families who come to us who are really confused by um, just the term dual disorder, and it seems to be a catch-all for whether it's an eating disorder and a cocaine addiction or nicotine. Um, dependence and diabetes. Um, You were talking earlier about some of the research that you're doing with people um, that have co-occurring disorders. Could you talk a little bit more about your research? Yeah, we we have many different projects uh, uh, up and running in the area of co-occurring disorders, and our, our larger research group has really over the past 20 years uh, has, a, has, has had its primary purpose uh, uh, helping improve uh, treatment and hopefully recovery for people with dual disorders. But 
I think uh, it, it is uh, a rather heterogeneous lot of folks uh, that are kind of clumped together when we talk about dual disorders. And one way, uh, uh, u- useful way of organizing this group of people is known as the quadrant model. And uh, without being able to, to have a visual here, it's really uh, four quadrants organized by two axes. One axis is based on substance use severity, and the other axis is based on uh, psychiatric problem severity. And uh, people can have high psychiatric problem severity and high substance use severity or low psychiatric problem severity and high substance use severity. And the permutations of that by quadrant, are, as the name implies, are really four possibilities. And some of the research uh, and treatments over the years have focused on people with severe and persistent mental illnesses like uh, schizophrenic disorders and bipolar disorder and schizoaffective disorder, many of uh, uh, whom suffered from substance dependence, as we talked about earlier, a, a very severe form of a substance use disorder or substance abuse, which is the less severe form. More recently, we've uh, our research group has begun to focus on people with the more severe substance dependence disorders and what are, are typically thought of, even though they can be quite troublesome and quite severe, as uh, less severe uh, psychiatric disorders like mood disorders such as depression or anxiety disorders like PTSD or social phobia. And folks that fall into these categories, the, the less severe psychiatric, more severe substance use disorders, often don't show up in the kind of programs that were designed to treat people with severe mental illnesses. They instead show up in places like addiction treatment programs or primary care practices or often may show up in drug courts or uh, impaired drivers programs. And many of these programs, including primary health care practices, haven't really been structured to address both disorders and addiction treatment programs in particular have over the years been focused on treating primary substance use disorders and have only recently begun to screen and assess and diagnose and form the beginnings of treatment for people that also have these other disorders, these other psychiatric disorders. So I I believe historically people that showed up into addiction treatment programs often felt uh, and were led to believe that if they stopped using a drug or alcohol and if they followed the treatment and if they attended peer support groups, then everything would get better. And it turns out that, and research has shown us this, that many people do, but there are probably an equal number of people that don't. And it it turns out that that those that don't uh, often have these uh, co-occurring psychiatric disorders, let's say depression or social anxiety disorder, that makes it very, very difficult for them to uh, uh, benefit from the treatment. And very, very difficult for them to maintain any period of abstinence because during those periods they uh, are typically more symptomatic with their their psychiatric disorder. So much of our research actually is focused on helping uh, programs and helping uh, clinicians develop better ways to to detect these kind of problems, better ways to to treat them, and uh, you know better ways to support them as they they try to to, to recover from both the mental health and the substance use disorder. What percentage of people that come into treatment have a co-occurring mental illness? Uh, In addiction treatment, the estimates, uh, the safest estimate is probably uh, 50%. The the ranges go from anywhere from 40% to 80%. uh, The 
diagnoses of mental uh, health issues is often a challenge because many people who enter addiction treatment have not really uh, had any uh, extended period of time without using substances. So although, although many will actually look like they have a comorbid psychiatric disorder, uh, if uh, a good uh, diagnostic uh, uh, process is, is undertaken, uh, some of these people with previous mental health diagnoses will turn out not to have them, but really have had substance-induced psychiatric problems. But at the same time, uh, it's more likely for people not to be diagnosed with a mental health issue than it is for them to be over-diagnosed with a mental health issue. So I, I think uh, it's probably better to exercise a, a liberal approach to these diagnoses uh, uh, in the face of what has been an era of missing altogether these diagnoses. Is there any special um, age that people develop a substance use disorder? Are people more prone to develop it at one stage of life than another? Yeah, it looks like from from all the data, it's uh, you know a- adolescence into young young adulthood is the is the greatest period of risk. The uh, the, the trajectories, uh, you know, the time from use to the time of of dependence or problem, at least problem use or abuse, varies from substance to substance by estimate. But if people typically initiate during, uh, you know, uh, uh, early adolescence or in some cases late childhood, there'll be a period of time before they uh, uh, have had sufficient use histories to develop the disorder. Unfortunately, uh, the trajectory from uh, from having developed the disorder to uh, getting into treatment or getting into care uh, remains uh, remarkably long for people with alcohol use disorders, nine years. So sadly, people with an alcohol problem are trying to manage it on their own for about nine years uh, from the time they've had the disorder to the time they actually get treatment. So it's quite uh, quite a, a necessary uh, period of suffering and, and, and also an unnecessary period of, uh, of uh, families having to suffer while a person struggles trying to get, uh, trying to get into care. Um, thank you for spending this hour with us, and I'm hoping that if listeners have any questions, could they contact you? Sure. Uh, email is always the best. It's mark, M-A-R-K dot P as in patrick.mcgovern, M-C-G-O-V-E-R-N, at dartmouth.edu. Dartmouth is spelled D-A-R-T-M-O-U-T-H. And hopefully people will understand what addiction is, what a substance use disorder is, and more importantly, people will understand that these are brain diseases that are have effective treatments and that people recover and can live very productive lives and that they do often require multiple episodes of care. So don't get discouraged. And um, if you want more information, please contact Dr. McGovern or you can con- contact me, Mary Woods, mwoods at westbridge.org. Westbridge is W-E-S-T-B-R-I-D-G-E dot org. Thank you for listening, and next week we will um, spend an hour with Dr. Mark Green talking about opiate dependency and um, opiate replacement therapy. Thank you for listening, and have a great week. We 
appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.